morning, Grace. Today is the first Sunday of Advent, where we turn our attention to the first coming of Jesus while we anticipate his final coming. So we're taking a break from our series in 1 Peter and beginning a new series today, which I've titled Glorious Mess, How God Redeems a Broken World. And the answer to that is that Jesus entered into this broken world. Jesus entered into this glorious mess. He did not discard the world after Adam's sin. That's probably what we would have done. We typically discard the mess. We don't like mess. Andy Rooney said, one of the most glorious messes in the world is the mess created in the living room on Christmas Day. Don't clean it up too quickly. But we don't like mess, do we? So we like to clean up the living room floor on Christmas morning because we don't like mess. We take pictures and put them on Instagram after we spend 20 minutes getting our plate of food to look just right. So we end up eating cold food so that people will heart or like our perfect picture. Crazy the things that we do. We all live in these made up perfect little worlds, either out there on social media or in here when we come to church. We create fake identities on social media. We come to church and we're fake. We're not transparent. We're not honest. We're not real. And we do these things because we don't like mess. We don't like to admit our mess, our failures, our sins. We don't like to admit that we are messy, that we are sinful. We don't like to admit that we are in constant need of grace. We like to think that we have our act together and that we're better than other people. So we might be fooling ourselves, but we have not fooled Jesus. Jesus sees our mess. He sees our sins. He sees our failures. He sees our bitterness. He sees our lust. He sees our greed. He sees our worry. He sees our pride. He sees all of these things. So we can't fool Jesus. And we can't fool Jesus with our sudden interest in race relations either. We can't fool Jesus with our sudden interest in justice. We can't fool Jesus with our tweets and posts about Ferguson and race, even though we've never talked about race relations before. You can't fool Jesus. If you weren't interested in reconciling the races and you weren't interested in fighting to see racism end and suddenly that's all you talk about on social media and suddenly you're quoting Martin Luther King Jr. and suddenly you're interested in these things, you may have fooled your friends online, but you can't fool Jesus. Jesus knows whether or not you are truly interested in seeing racism end. And I hope that you are. We've got a long way to go as a country. We need to pray. We need Jesus. We desperately need Jesus. 
But you can't fool Jesus with your social media posts. He knows whether or not you are really interested in seeing racism end. And we can't fool Jesus with our perfectly crafted dinner that we take a picture of and then we add that cool filter and then we post it to Instagram or Facebook. We can't fool Jesus even though we may have fooled everyone in our lives that we have it all together. So you see, in some way, we all walk around like we have it together and we may be doing a superb job of fooling everyone else that we're good but we can't fool Jesus. That's the bad news. Let's just get that out of the way, okay? Let the cat out of the bag. The bad news is that we are broken. We are messy sinners. But the good news of the gospel is this. Jesus sees the darkest, most hideous, secret places of our hearts and he still loves us. That's such good news to me. Jesus knows that we're all a bunch of fakes, and he still loves us. Jesus looks at the darkest, the most hideous, the most grotesque, the most secret places of our hearts, and he still loves us. Jesus sees all of those secret things that you hide. Those thoughts, those words, those desires that nobody knows about. And he still loves you. Jesus comes to us in the gospel, but Jesus doesn't come to us all covered up like a doctor working on Ebola patients. Jesus doesn't come to us in a hazmat suit. He doesn't keep us at arm's length when he comes to us. He comes to save us, to welcome us, to redeem us. And that's what the opening of Matthew's gospel will say to us. It will show us that because of Adam's sin, we are all a mess. And we must come to grips with this. As Charles Spurgeon said, beware that you no longer appear as a sinner in your own eyes and do not want to be a sinner, for Christ dwells only in sinners. And so we must embrace that we are broken, that we are messed up, that we are fakes, that we are hypocrites, that we are sinners, that we are a glorious mess that Jesus is currently in the process of redeeming. And Jesus started this process by entering our world, by entering our mess and becoming just like us, sin only accepted. So the good news of the gospel is that God enters into our mess. God redeems this broken world by entering it, by coming down, by coming down to us in order to redeem us, to purchase us back out of the slave market of sin to save us, and to fix us. And that's surprising if you think about it. The holy God who created the universe comes down to this messy world to us sinners, scoundrels, rebels, rascals, reprobates, and if we're honest with ourselves, racists. 
And that ought to knock your socks off. It ought to make your jaw drop that God comes down to us. And your jaw might drop when you see how Matthew starts his gospel. Because on the surface it appears that Matthew doesn't exactly understand how you're supposed to start a book. You're supposed to start a book with something that will engage the reader. Something that will hook them. Something that makes them not want to put the book down. And you see in Matthew chapter 1 how Matthew starts his gospel with a genealogy, with a list of dead people. And Matthew doesn't write about dead people the way that Stephen King does. It's just a list of dead people here. One after another, name after name, boring. Doesn't Matthew know that we are a DVR generation? We fast forward through commercials. We fast forward through boring things. So-and-so became the father of, Matthew says, and -and so-and-so became the father of, and -and so-and-so became the father of, and we became bored. At least give us some pictures, Matthew. Your publisher should have at least suggested some pictures to accompany this seemingly boring list of people. And even the title to Matthew's book is kind of boring. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Even though the title mentions Jesus, it is kind of a boring title, isn't it? It certainly wouldn't sell many books today. But we shouldn't be quick to throw Matthew under the bus because he's just doing what he read in his Bible, the Old Testament. Matthew's just doing what Moses does in Genesis chapter 5. In Genesis 5.1, Moses writes, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And Moses writes and records all of the people that lived and died. So-and-so lived, so-and-so fathered so-and-so, and then so-and-so died. So Matthew just copies Moses as he begins his book. But there's a difference between Moses and Matthew. Moses ends his genealogical record with the repeated refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died. But Matthew writes about someone, Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Matthew's book will not end with, and he died, but he will end his book with a resurrected redeemer. Matthew differs from Moses in Genesis because Matthew writes about a resurrected Lord who lives forever. There's a big difference. But nonetheless, you may still think this opening is boring. I mean, all these names. What in the world are we to do with all of these names? Well, I'm going to try to convince you today that these verses of seemingly boring names are solid gold and that they should rent space on our coffee mugs. I'm going to try to convince you today that these verses, verses full of dead people and verses like them in the Bible should be your life verse. I'm going to try and convince you today that a list of dead people can be the very thing that you need this Christmas season. I mean, who knew? A list of dead people could be the very thing that gives us hope This Christmas, as we sludge through the mess and the muck and the mire of our lives, who knew? Only your God, Christian, only your God thinks like that. Only your God thinks outside of the box and says, what my people need in this messy, 
crazy, chaotic, stressed out, overwhelming season of their lives, what they need is a list of dead people. Yeah, that's it. That's what my children need. They need a list of dead people for Christmas. I love that our God thinks this way. So let's read about some of these dead people that we need this holiday season. Look at Matthew chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord who thinks outside the box. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nachshon, and Nachshon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. The list of dead people in Matthew chapter 1 may seem boring, but this list is full of gospel hope for messy people like you and me. In these verses, we see the family tree of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We see that Jesus was born into this world, and that should surprise us. That Jesus was born into this world as the God-man. He's fully God, fully man, with those two natures united together in one person. He was just like us, except without sin, as Hebrews 2.17 and Hebrews 4.15 says. That means Jesus was a human being just like us. He was God in the flesh, God with us, Emmanuel. God come down into this fallen, broken world, but he was without sin, Jesus never sinned once. Every time he was tempted to sin, he said, no. He fully obeyed the law of God. Where Adam failed and where we fail every single day, Jesus succeeded. So what is so surprising about this list of dead people in verses one through six? The names are surprising. The names are surprising not because they sound weird or because they're hard to pronounce. The names are not surprising because no one names their kid Ram anymore. The names are surprising because these aren't the squeakiest clean of all people. This is a list of some very, 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 very bad people. You've got a veritable who's who of Old Testament ragamuffins here. Abraham was a liar. Isaac was a liar. Jacob was a deceiver. Notice the name Tamar there. Do you remember what happened with Tamar in Genesis 38? The shady family situation that happened in Genesis 38? I'll just leave it at that, and you can go read it this afternoon. It involves incest. It involves prostitution. Not exactly how you want your family to go down into the history books. Not exactly how you want your family to go down into the Bible, the best-selling book of all time. All of this drama and all of this mess is a part of Jesus' family tree. It surprises us, or it should that Jesus would be from a messed up people like this, that Jesus would come from such a screwed up family. 
but it shows us that he is indeed a friend of sinners. He's not afraid to call us brothers, as Hebrews 2.11 says. So Jesus' lineage, his family tree, is littered with thieves and scoundrels and liars and murderers and rapists. There's incest, prostitutes, rebellion, and Jesus loved every single one of them. And in verse five, we see the mention of Rahab and Ruth. Rahab was a prostitute. Rahab was a lady red light working the red light district in Canaan at night. She sold herself, she sold her body to make a buck. And she is the one that Joshua spared when they destroyed Jericho. And Ruth is a Moabite woman who acts more like an Israelite in the book of Ruth than many others. Ruth, the Moabite, acts more like an Israelite than Naomi, who was an Israelite in the book of Ruth. And so with these two ladies, Rahab and Ruth, we get some Gentile blood mingling with Jewish blood. Surely it's a testimony to the fact that God loves all peoples, all nations, all races, all people groups of the world. God loves all races. And that's why we are against Racism. That's why we are against any person being judged or treated differently or treated horribly because of the color of their skin. And that's why we need to be praying with the events evolved around Ferguson because racism is a sin that is handcrafted and forged in the fires of hell by the devil himself. And that's why we're against it. Because God loves all races. But we see in verse 5 some Gentile blood mixing in with Jewish blood. Therefore, verse 5 ought to make you do the happy dance if you aren't Jewish. Because Gentiles, non-Jews, and that's most of us here, we are welcome into the family of God. That's most of us here. So Matthew 1, 5 ought to go on the coffee mugs of all of us Gentiles here. It ought to remind you that Jesus sees the darkest, most hideous, secret places of our hearts, and he still loves us. Because if we're all honest, we've got a little racism residing in our hearts, we all have a little pride. We all feel a bit of superiority. We all think that we're better than some people. We all think that we have our act together. We all live with some sense that we have moved beyond our need of grace. And Jesus sees that. He sees all of that. And he still loves us. How amazing that Jesus sees all of our junk and yet he came down and joined a family line full of liars, deceivers, the sexually immoral, prostitutes, outsiders, and outcasts. How amazing that God comes down to us in the gospel. That's surprising. The God who created the universe comes down to sinners to scoundrels, to rebels, to rascals, to reprobates, and even to racists. 
That ought to knock your socks off grace. That ought to make your jaw drop. Fellow messy sinners, we need to rejoice today because God came down to us in the incarnation. Right down into the mess of our lives and he doesn't run away. He loves us. I want a beautiful list of names here in Matthew's gospel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Jesus. You may be tempted to think that one of these names doesn't belong here. You may be tempted to think that Jesus' name doesn't belong in this list. But you would be wrong because this is the kind of people that Jesus came to save. Jesus loves saving sinners. Like in the movie Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure when Bill and Ted go back in time and bring Socrates Socrates to the future and, and, and he can't speak English so Ted's interpreting for him at the, at the school program and Socrates says something and Ted interprets for him and he says, he loves San Dimas. You can say that about Jesus. He loves sinners. He's attracted to sinners like a magnet. When a sinner cries out, God have mercy on me, Jesus is attracted like a magnet. He's drawn to them. In fact, Jesus' name means Yahweh is salvation. Jesus' name is just the Hebrew name Joshua. It means Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is God's covenant name, his personal name in the Old Testament. Yahweh means I am that I am. And Jesus' name means Yahweh is salvation. So Jesus entered our mess. He came to this broken world to redeem it, to save it. And he did it by becoming just like us. Sin only accepted. But there's another name in this list in Matthew's gospel that pops out. David. David, David, David. We love him, don't we? He was one of Israel's greatest kings. He wrote a lot of the Psalms. He took Goliath down with a rock. I mean, what would every children's Bible do without the story of David and Goliath? But we all know that David had secrets. And the fact of the matter is that we all have secrets, don't we? David had secrets. We all know how he messed up big time. And the reminder that David had secrets and how he messed up big time is right there in the text of verse six. It says, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. David was Solomon's dad, but how David came to be Solomon's dad was not a romantic story. In fact, it's the kind of story that you expect to hear on a Friday night on Dateline. David should have been out in the battlefield, but he was at home at the palace. And he kidnapped Bathsheba and raped her. And after this abusive power play by David, Bathsheba started to get morning sickness, grabbed a pregnancy test, saw the little pink plus sign, and then sent word to David. And David hatched a plan to cover up his tracks. So he sent her husband, Uriah, to the front lines of the battle with the express purpose that Uriah would die. And Uriah did die. And then David thought he was literally getting away with murder. But God exposed David's sins through the prophet Nathan. Nathan. 
And then Bathsheba's baby died and then David married her and she eventually became pregnant again and had Solomon. It's all there in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. But don't miss that Bathsheba who was innocent in this narrative because in the Hebrew it's this offline structure and you get these comments about Bathsheba that are off on the side, if you will, in Hebrew to let you know she was cleansing herself according to the book of Leviticus. She's the pure one. She's the holy one. Bathsheba, who was innocent and who was most likely an outsider, a non-Jew, most likely a Hittite like her husband, she is often referred to in the Bible as the wife of Uriah. She gets referred to not as the wife of David, but the wife of Uriah the Hittite, like here in Matthew 1.6. The writers of the Bible don't cover up this fact for David. The writers of the Bible don't sweep David's mess under the rug. All of this mess that we just heard involved our beloved David. The David that we all love. Personally, it's a little too shady a business for me. It's a little too messy, David. A little too ugly. Lust Rape, deception, greed, murder. It sounds like one of those 48 Hours Mystery shows on TV. Tonight on 48 Hours Mystery, a king who had all the power in the world, a king who had everything he could ever want, everything but his friend's wife. This is the story of a king who abused his power and used people to get what he wanted most. It's a sordid tale of lust, rape, deception, greed, and murder. Tonight on 48 Hours Mystery. A little too messy for you? Too messy for the church? Too messy to preach? Too messy for a children's Bible? Do we need to get some Clorox bleach and clean up this incident a little, get some sanitizer out maybe? No, it's a part of the surprising family tree of Jesus. It's proof that Jesus sees the darkest, most hideous, secret places of our hearts and he still loves us. Jesus looks at the darkest, the most hideous, the most grotesque, and most secret places of our hearts, and he still loves us. Jesus sees all the secret things that you hide, those thoughts that if somebody found out that you thought, they, that, you thought that, you would run away and hide forever. Jesus sees those thoughts, those words that come out of your mouth that only your family hears those desires, those things that you want. He sees all of that and he still loves you. Jesus saw all that David did and he still loved him. He had mercy on him. He forgave him. That's the gospel. We must wonder and marvel today about how Jesus came down to us, how he condescended to us, loved us, and was associated with such sinners and messed up people like his earthly family. And the list, the crazy list, continues. Look at verse 7. 
And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. If you know your Bible and you know the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, then you may recognize some of these names. Some of these people are not exactly royalty material. They're not exactly regal. They're not exactly king material. They weren't perfect people, but some of these kings were as bad as bad gets. Like that name Manasseh. That name Manasseh in verse 10 ought to make you queasy. Because what does 2 Kings say about Judah's deportation to Babylon, their exile to Babylon that we looked at several months ago in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah? How did they get there? 2 Kings 24 verses 3 through 4 says that this exile, surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord would not pardon. Jesus was related to one of the worst scoundrels in Judah's history. I mean, if you wanted to cut someone down back then, then calling them Manasseh was as good a cut down as any. Manasseh was the worst king in the history of Judah. But even he repented and found mercy, according to Second Chronicles 33, verses 10 through 13, which says this. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Manasseh was the worst of the worst and yet he repented and he found grace. He humbled himself and found grace. Jesus loved Manasseh even though he knew the darkest places of Manasseh's heart. This wicked king was a part of the Messiah's family line. There's hope for anyone here today, no matter how messed up your life is. Thomas Brooks, one of the Puritans, said this, Oh, despairing souls, the arms of mercy are open to receive a Manasseh, a monster, a devil incarnate. There's hope for anyone here today. So 11 verses in, in Matthew's gospel, and Jesus' family tree is not looking good so far. His family was messy like all of ours. That's something to think about during the holidays, Jesus' family was just as messed up as yours. That ought to give you some hope as you recover from Thanksgiving weekend. 
And as you dread Christmas with your messed up family, it ought to give you some hope that Jesus' family was just as messed up as yours. And you can get some more hope because we have five more verses, five more hopeful verses to look at, full of hope. Look at verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen. 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. For the most part, most of these people are just a whole bunch of nobodies. Nothing terribly significant about the people in verses 12 through 17. They're just run of the mill Israelites. You won't find these guys making any appearances in any children's Bible. They never did any VeggieTales videos on these guys. They're just average people, average Israelites. There's nothing fancy about them, kind of like us. There's just a list of obscure, currently dead people in that the Son of God came down into this family line. This messed up, sin-sick, obscure people, Jesus called home. He called them family. So Jesus' family tree contains a veritable who's who of the worst of the worst, and it also contains a lot of who's that guy? Never heard of him before. A who's who of wicked people doing wicked things and a handful of who's that guy? Nobodies. And Jesus says, I'd like you to meet my family. So you might as well write your name in the margin next to these verses because you were just like them. And it's shocking that God himself would condescend to lowly humanity. But it's also shocking that he would come to join a family line that was seriously messed up. I mean, the people listed in these 11 verses would be right at home on an episode of Jerry Springer or Dr. Phil. I mean, I can just see Dr. Phil saying in his nasally tone, What were you thinking, David? Rape? Deception? Murder? I mean, wonder of all wonders, Grace, the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, came down to us, to us messed up, seriously messed up, sin-sick people. How amazing, how surprising, how amazing and how surprising that Jesus sees the darkest, most hideous, secret places of our hearts And he still loves us. But it gets even more surprising. You kind of expect that from God at this point, don't you? Just when you get over the shock of what he does, he's got more. Why? Because God is not predictable. God can handle a scandal. He can handle mystery. Not only does Jesus love us, even when he sees the darkest, most hideous, secret places of our heart, He actually became all of these things on the cross 
for us. Not only does Jesus love us when he sees the darkest, most hideous, secret places of our hearts, he actually became these things on the cross for us. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Commenting on this verse, Martin Luther said this, our most merciful father, seeing us to be oppressed and overwhelmed with the curse of the law, sent his only son into the world and laid upon him all the sins of all men, saying, you be Peter, that denier. Paul, that persecutor, blasphemer, and cruel oppressor. David, that adulterer. That sinner who ate the apple in paradise. That thief who hung on the cross. And briefly, you be the person who has committed the sins of all men. See, therefore, that you pay and satisfy for them. Jesus became the darkest most hideous places of our hearts. All those things that we hate, that we are ashamed of, Jesus became them and took them upon himself on the cross. He took our place. On the cross, Jesus became a racist to save racists. On the cross, Jesus became the racist, the blasphemer, the adulterer, the thief. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus loves us in the darkest places and he proved that by entering our mess and going to the cross and becoming sin for us. He became and took the blame of our ugliest moments. He came for sinners like you and me. That's who Jesus came for. He entered our mess and became sin for us on the cross that we might become the righteousness of God, the perfect standard that the law demands. He came for sinners. He came down. And that means that grace flows downhill. Grace only flows downhill. It finds you at the bottom. Grace only works for losers. Grace only works for the down and out. Grace only works for the broken, those people who reach the end of themselves and they say, I am without hope apart from Jesus. Can you admit your need of grace today? Are you a sinner? Do you believe that you are a mess? Do you believe that you're a sinner? Do you believe that you're messed up? Good, I'm glad you do. Because that's the prerequisite to grace, admitting your sin admitting your brokenness, admitting your mess, and then you're wide open to receive his grace. So you don't have to be grieved by your sins because Jesus came for messy sinners. You are who Jesus came for. And therefore, and you've heard me say it several times, Puritan Richard Sibbs is right when he says this, shall our sins discourage us? 
when he appears there only for sinners? Shall we really be discouraged by our sins? Because this is who Jesus came for. Recognition of your state as a sinner doesn't lead you to despair because it opens the door for you to receive Jesus. Admitting that you're a sinner, admitting that you're screwed up, that you're messed up, it doesn't cause despair. What it does is it opens the door for you to receive Jesus. So there's no need to be discouraged today because Jesus comes to us. He doesn't come to us all covered up like a doctor working on an Ebola patient. He doesn't come to us in a hazmat suit. He doesn't keep us at arm's length. He embraces us. He looks at the darkest, most hideous, most secret places of our hearts. And he unbelievably still loves us. He sees all the secret things that you hide, those thoughts. And I had one while we were singing worship songs. I thought, my God, I can't believe I'm thinking this thought and I'm singing to you, Jesus. And he still loves me when I sing worship songs and have bad thoughts. He sees all those thoughts that you have, all those words, all those desires, and he still loves you. He looks at the darkest, the most hideous, the most secret places of our hearts, and he loves us. He sees our thoughts, our words, our desires, and he still loves us. So own your mess today, because you can't fool Jesus. He already knows it. Own the mess of your family. When you own your mess, and you own the mess of your family, it doesn't lead to discouragement. What it does is it opens the door to Jesus. God comes down to us in our mess. He sees our mess, he sees our filth, sees our sins, and he still loves us. That is surprising. The holy God who created the universe comes down to us sinners, scoundrels, rebels, rascals, reprobates, and racists. And that ought to knock your socks off, Grace. That ought to make your jaw drop open. That ought to make you stand up and sing the doxology with passion or whatever song we're singing next. So let's close and heed the admonition of Charles Spurgeon who said this about this passage. Let us leave this wonderful passage worshiping the Son of God who condescended to be born the Son of Man. Thus our God became our brother, bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. The nearer he comes to us, the more humbly let us adore him. The more true the kinship of our king, the more enthusiastically let us crown him Lord of all. Let's pray. Father, how overwhelming and surprising that you just don't wipe us out. My goodness, Father, this room is full of sinners And we've all done horrendous things this last week, even this morning, last night. And you haven't wiped us out because you're so enamored with your son, with his perfect life in obeying the law of God and his perfect death and dying for us and his resurrection. You're so overwhelmed with what your son does that you don't give us what we deserve. And we're surprised by that. And we're overwhelmed. And we're humbled
and we say thank you that you see all of our junk and you don't run away. You actually want us to come to you, smelly, stinking of sin. Would you cause us to do that by the power of your spirit now, that we would once again enthusiastically crown your son Lord of all. In his name we pray, amen.